Hi there, physiologists. Welcome back to another episode of Physiology Corner with Professor Howard. I'm your host, Professor Christina Howard, and today's episode is all about how to point your finger. Now, if you read the title of this and you thought to yourself, my God, Professor Howard has completely lost her mind and taken leave of her senses, um, you're not entirely wrong. It's been a really stressful quarantine teaching experience for me. Um, but as I'm about to explain, there's actually a really good reason I'm making an episode with such a silly title. So let me explain it to you. My students have a big test at the end of their two terms of A&P that covers everything they learned throughout those two terms. Now, that's a lot of information. It's everything from the histology of tissues, so learning about connective tissue, muscle tissue, etc., all the way through neural control and integration, the endocrine system, and things like renal function, reproduction, breathing, what have you. The really difficult part of ANP is not, as you might expect, memorizing all the facts. Most people are smart enough to memorize facts. All you have to do is use repetition until you've memorized the thing. But that's only part of the learning that's necessary. The real difficulty of A&P is taking all the things that you have now memorized and putting them into a bigger framework or context, understanding how they connect to and integrate with each other to produce homeostatic outcomes. So basically how it all works together. There's a lot of moving parts and students find this to be really intimidating. And I understand why, because it is intimidating. So in order to sort of better help students understand what integration looks like, I'm going to stay away from reciting facts to you that you could easily read in your textbook. And instead, I'm going to put some things that you should already know into a broader context by telling you a story. The story begins like this. Once upon a time, you decided to point your finger. Now, where did this impulse begin? How did it occur to you in the first place? Well, the impulse to point your finger probably arose from some need, and that is higher cognition stuff that is beyond the scope of this particular discussion. But regardless, you have the ability to decide upon your behavior, and once that decision is made, then you have to execute what's called a motor program. So a motor program is the sequence of muscular actions in order that must be completed to accomplish a particular muscular task. So if you're an adult and you've already, you know, done most of your, if not all of your motor learning, this stuff feels really effortless to you. But if you know any babies and are watching them learn to pilot their bodies, you'll know that it's actually not quite as easy as it seems, right? Because, you know, babies still have to learn to do things like point their finger or operate their legs, for example. So don't take movement for granted. Once you spent a lot of time and energy learning to do it. So take what you know about the muscles of the hand, arm, and forearm, and go ahead and point your own finger and think about the order of operations to do that. So I'm going to use an example of raising your arm forward, extending your elbow, and pointing your finger. In order to raise your arm, you have to engage your deltoid, as well as other extensors and abductors of the shoulder. 
In order to extend your elbow, you must contract your triceps brachii in order to achieve elbow extension. And in order to point your finger specifically, you have to make a closed fist. So you have to use your flexor digitorum, both superficialis and profundus, uh, to close your fingers. And then you must also use your adductor pollicis, brevis and longus, to move your thumb inward. Then you have to flex your thumb using your flexor pollicis muscles. And finally, you must activate your extensor indices, which is a muscle that allows you to extend your index finger only. So in order to do this, you have to do these things in the correct order, otherwise the motion is not executed correctly and will not go off properly. So, how do you decide what the correct order of things to do is, and where on the brain or in the brain does that occur? The answer starts with the cortex of your brain. So we're going to get a review of neuroanatomy in here. The cortex of your brain is the superficial layer, so it's the outermost layer of your neural brain tissue, and it's home to cell bodies, so neurosomata, glial cells, and lots of interneurons. So the cortex is where your computing power lives primarily for your brain. So your frontal lobe is, as it sounds like, on the front of your brain, and the frontal cortex is involved in motor control, tasks and management, and complex decision making. There is a deep sulcus or groove that divides the frontal lobe from the two parietal lobes behind it, and this is called the central sulcus. On the anterior side of that sulcus is a gyrus, or sort of wrinkly lump of brain tissue, of cortical tissue specifically, called the precentral gyrus. Precentral means it's in front of the central sulcus, and gyrus just means it's a brain wrinkle. Anterior to that is an area of your cerebral cortex, your frontal cortex, called the motor association area. So you might remember from studying brain anatomy that for each of the primary processing areas, there is a corresponding association area. Now we ordinarily talk about those in the context of sensation. So for example, the primary auditory cortex and the auditory association area, um, one receives sound, the other makes sense of the sounds that it's receiving. There's also a primary and a association area for motor control. So I mentioned a motor program earlier. That's the order of muscular events that you have to do to carry off a motion. The motor program is decided in the motor association area. So the steps necessary to extend your elbow, lift your arm and point your finger, they are compiled into an ordered list in the motor association area and the motor association area provides that ordered list to your precentral gyrus. The precentral gyrus is your primary motor cortex, and it contains something called a motor homunculus, or a somatomotor homunculus specifically. Somatomotor meaning 
specific to the somatic nervous system, which is the portion of your nervous system that gives you control over your skeletal muscles. So what is a homunculus? Well, homunculus is Latin for small, tiny man. What it really means is there is a neural map of all of the skeletal muscles of your body printed in neurons on the precentral gyrus. So there's an area that corresponds to your biceps brachii. There's an area that corresponds to your orbicularis oris. I'm using mine right now to make mouth sounds that form words. So there's an area of the precentral gyrus that corresponds to each and every one of your skeletal muscles. So your motor association area feeds instructions to the appropriate location on the precentral gyrus in the order that the motions must occur. And that's how you carry off the order of operations correctly. It also provides information about tone. So not only are you contracting a series of muscles, you're also not opposing any serious force in doing so. So you're not lifting really heavily um, or you're not, you know, flexing your skeletal muscles to point against any particular resistance, which means that you don't have to contract those muscles very hard. So there's also instructions about the intensity with which you should contract your muscles for a particular movement goal. So the instructions for the movement leave the precentral gyrus and they do that beginning with the excitation of upper motor neurons. So in motor control, there's two neurons. One of them begins in your precentral gyrus, and these are also called pyramidal cells. They're called that because their cell bodies look like little triangles, and so when they were discovered uh, by dyeing them with ink, someone was like, ah, they look like wee pyramids, so we'll call them pyramidal cells. So pyramidal cells is the way we refer to their shape. Upper motor neurons is the way we refer to their function. So let's follow one pathway. We're going to follow the pathway that leads down to the extensor indices, which is the one that allows you to point your index finger. So the motor association area excites the group of neurons that are associated with my or your right extensor indices. This is actually positioned on the left side of your brain. So the left side of your brain controls your right uh, arm and leg muscles, and the right side of your brain controls the left arm and leg muscles. So what we would call this is contralateral control, so opposite side as. So what that means is when I extend my extensor indices on my right side, the command is initiating from the left side of my brain. So the pyramidal cells that control my extensor indices for my right hand light up on the left side of my precentral gyrus. The way that works is that those neurons are brought to threshold by neurotransmitter release, and then an action potential is going to fire from the axon hillock of one of those pyramidal cells down the axon of my upper motor neuron until the synapse. So as that action potential travels down the axon, the axon itself is passing through 
a bunch of critical brain structures that you need to know about before it eventually terminates in the spinal cord. So let's talk about that. I mentioned the cortex is the gray matter on the surface of your brain. Much of the deep brain is white matter, which we call tracts. That's T-R-A-C-T, not T-R-A-C-K. So a tract is a group of myelinated axons that have roughly the same destination and travel together. So what my axon is going to do is travel down into the white matter of the left side of my brain. It's going to pass through the midbrain, through the pons, and it's going to enter the medulla oblongata. On the anterior surface of the medulla oblongata, there are two long baseball bat-shaped structures. It kind of looks like you embedded a baseball bat in the wall. They're running parallel to each other, and these are called the pyramids of the medulla oblongata. The reason I'm stressing this piece of neuroanatomy is because at this point, my axon is still on the left side of my brain, but I need to send it to a muscle that's on the right side of my body. So in order to do that, the axon and the signal have to at some point cross over to the other side. When an axon crosses over to the other side of the body in the nervous system, we call this decusation. That's the verb that corresponds to crossing over. The location that upper motor neurons cross over is the pyramids of the medulla oblongata. So we call this the decusation of the pyramids, and it just means a motor impulse carried by an axon is crossing from left to right or right to left. So in my example, since I'm controlling my right extensor indices, the impulse is crossing from the left side, left pyramid, over to the right side, and then continuing down. No synapsing happening, just an axon changing lanes. Now, because I'm using my um, excuse me, sorry, there is a brief distraction in the form of my dog. Now, because I'm using my motor neurons, there's no synapsing happening here. And because I'm using the right side, after this decusation event, uh, the impulse is going to travel down to the appropriate spinal segment that corresponds to whatever muscle I'm talking about. In this case, the muscles in my arm. So my upper motor neuron is going to, after it's decusated, go down to the appropriate spinal cord segment that corresponds to arm control. So that's going to be the cervical enlargement at the base of the C-spine, um, which gives rise to the, to the uh, excuse me, brachial plexus. And the brachial plexus is the group of nerves that innervate the arm. So not a long distance to go. Once the appropriate spinal cord segment is reached, my upper motor neuron synapses on a lower motor neuron. So there's two neurons, one upper, one lower, and I'm now talking about the area in the spinal cord where they interact. So now I need to do a brief review of chemical synapses. So in a chemical synapse, two cells are interacting, but they're not physically touching. So that means the membrane of the upper motor neuron is not in physical contact with the membrane of the lower motor neuron. They are separated from each other by a small cleft. In order for the 
action potential to pass from the upper motor neuron and initiate an action potential in the lower motor neuron, synaptic transmission must occur. So when an action potential, which is a traveling wave of depolarization, reaches the axon terminus of the upper motor neuron, it's going to open some voltage-gated calcium channels that are on the axon terminus of the upper motor neuron. And those voltage-gated cal calcium channels are going to open and let calcium into the axon terminus. That triggers a series of events which cause the vesicles of neurotransmitter that are waiting in the axon terminus to fuse with the cell membrane and release the neurotransmitter. So in my class, one thing we talk about is just how important calcium is as a regulatory ion in the human body in all kinds of systems. And one of the most critical things that calcium does for us is allow us to release neurotransmitter from our neurons. So having thoughts, experiencing feelings, emotions, making the choice to move, having a working digestive system, anything autonomic, all of that is contingent upon synaptic transmission and successful neurotransmitter release. None of that would get done without calcium. So calcium is very important. So going back to our example, now we're almost to the point where we're pointing our extensor into this, but not quite yet. The neurotransmitter released by upper motor neurons is not what you might expect. It's glutamate. So we don't talk about glutamatergic synapses much in A&P. It's more of a neuroscience concept. Uh, glutamatergic is a word, it's an adjective that means a synapse where the neurotransmitter is glutamate. So if you're not familiar with glutamate as a neurotransmitter, um, it's hugely ubiquitous. Ubiquitous is a word that means very, very common and widespread throughout the body. Um, something like 90% of our neurons are, are glutamatergic, so quite a lot. And in spite of that, most A&P textbooks don't really talk much about glutamate, which is strange. Uh, you might be experiencing familiarity feelings at the word glutamate, however, because you might associate it with monosodium glutamate, which is a flavor enhancer additive in food. One of the reasons it works is because you have endogenous glutamate receptors already present in your body. So glutamate's a really useful neurotransmitter. And in this case, glutamate is released into the synaptic cleft and binds to glutamate receptors on the neurosoma and dendrites of the lower motor neuron. And that is how the upper motor neuron excites the lower motor neuron. Now, what I haven't addressed is where exactly this all occurs. So I said that it occurs in the appropriate spinal segment that corresponds to the muscle wanting to be moved. In this case, the spinal segment corresponding to the brachial plexus. But I haven't talked about the specific neuroanatomy of the spinal cord at that location. So now we have to do that. A given cross-sectional slice of spinal cord is going to contain gray matter and white matter. The gray matter is arranged in a butterfly shape in the center of the spinal cord. And there are multiple white matter columns positioned around that central gray area. So the columns can tarry tra uh, carry tracts of myelinated axons that are either afferent, so carrying information towards the central nervous system, or are efferent, carrying information away from the central nervous system. 
And they're not all mixed together willy-nilly. They're actually organized into very specific tracts. So the tract that we're talking about for this example is the upper motor neuron's axon is going to travel in the lateral corticospinal tract. Lateral means on the side of the spinal cord, and corticospinal means leading from the neural cortex in the brain to the spinal cord. So the name tells you where the original address of the signal came from and where it's going to. So the synapse itself happens in the anterior or ventral gray horn of the spinal cord because the anterior or ventral gray horn of the spinal cord is the location that somatic motor neurons live in. So they project their axons out to muscles, but their neurosomas live in the spinal cord in that particular gray horn. So if you need a review of spinal cord neuroanatomy, I would recommend pausing the podcast and going and looking at that so you know the location I'm talking about. And while you're doing that, also take a look at where the lateral spinothalamic, or excuse me, corticospinal tract is. Okay, so we've achieved glutamatergic synapsing. We've excited our lower motor neuron. And this lower motor neuron is going to travel in through the brachial plexus, its axon is, out to my extensor indices. So the side of your forearm corresponding to the top or dorsal surface of your hand is where the extensor indices lives. And the extensor indices is next to your extensor digitorum, but separate from it. So it's a little muscle with a belly or area where the sarcomeres are, and then a long tendon that goes to your index finger only. So you can actually see this tendon. If you make a fist and look at your fist, and then without moving any other part of your fist, extend your index finger just past your knuckle where your finger meets your hand, you're going to see a little S-shaped squiggly thing moving back and forth underneath your skin as you point and flex your finger. So make a fist and point and unpoint your finger a few times and you should see that tendon moving under your skin. So that's your extensor indices tendon. But we still have to talk about how our lower motor neuron excites the extensor indices. So let's tell that story. Once the action potential in the lower motor neuron's axon travels down to the axon terminus, it ends up at a complex location called the neuromuscular junction, which is what it sounds like. It's where a neuron talks to a muscle cell to get it to do its job. So lower motor neurons are not glutamatergic. They are cholinergic, meaning they release acetylcholine. The surface or sarcolemma of a skeletal muscle, in this case the extensor indices, expresses acetylcholine receptors. So these are transmembrane proteins with a binding site that is the right shape for the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. So upon arrival of the action potential at the end of the lower motor neuron, again, voltage-gated calcium channels are opened, 
calcium enters the axon terminus, and vesicles of acetylcholine fuse with the lower motor neurons axon terminus and release acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft. That acetylcholine will diffuse into the cleft and bind to the acetylcholine receptors that are present on the sarcolemma. These particular acetylcholine receptors are nicotinic, and they are also referred to as ionotropic, meaning when a chemical binds to them, they turn into an ion channel. So another way to refer to an ionotropic receptor is a chemically gated ion channel. The necessary step to open the ion channel is a chemical must bind. So that's a bunch of different ways to refer to the same thing. So acetylcholine receptors, nicotinic ones anyway, there are other kinds. The nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, when two acetylcholine bind to the surface of that receptor, it causes the protein to undergo a conformational change that the central pore of the protein is now open, and it's open to one specific ion only, and that is sodium. So binding of acetylcholine to the receptor opens that receptor and turns it into a sodium channel, which allows sodium to diffuse into the skeletal muscle. And that produces a graded potential, which, if it's sufficiently large, will excite nearby areas of membrane that contain voltage-gated sodium channels. So the chemically-gated sodium channels let in enough sodium to open neighboring voltage-gated sodium channels, and that sets off an action potential in the sarcolemma. That action potential is then going to race over and spread across the membrane. It's going to extend down into the T-tubules, which are tunnels of membrane that extend deep into the skeletal muscle. And once the membrane in the T-tubule is depolarizing, there's actually a little voltage-sensitive protein that goes between the T-tubule sarcolemma and a little protein hatch or door that is on the sarcoplasmic reticulum of the skeletal muscle. Once that voltage sensor senses an action potential passing, it opens the little hatch on the sarcoplasmic reticulum and that lets calcium out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So once the calcium is out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, it's going to diffuse through the sarcoplasm, which is just the cytoplasm of a muscle cell, and hopefully it will make its way over to the thin filament, which is made out of uh, filamentous F-actin subunits, all glued together in a rope, but also troponin and tropomyosin. So calcium is then going to bind to the troponin, which is arranged on the tropomyosin like beads on a string. Once that happens, that results in the tropomyosin protein moving and rolling off of the active site for the F-actin. So we've gone from a refractory piece of F-actin that is unable to bind to myosin because its active site is blocked, to now an F-actin subunit that has an active binding site that is free and available for myosin to bind to. Assuming enough ATP is available for the myosin head to move into the correct position, 
the crossbridge cycle will start. Actin and myosin will bind to each other, perform the power stroke. The filaments will move past each other a little bit. And then the myosin head will release, recock itself into position, bind again. And that allows myosin filaments to pull actin filaments past itself, hand over fist, like pulling a rope along. And if you do that enough for the various motor units in your extensor indices, you're going to shorten your extensor indices, pull on that little tendon I showed you, and that should get your finger into the pointed position. So it's now taken me approximately 30 minutes to explain the neuroanatomical and molecular biological details of how you decided to point your finger and then executed that command. Along the way, we've discussed neuroanatomy of the brain, medulla oblongata, spinal cord, and the details about synaptic transmission, a little bit about action potentials and graded potentials, and finally, the coupling of excitation of a muscle cell with how that actually results in it generating tension. So that's a discussion that spanned a bunch of stuff that you should know from Biology 241 and place it into a context that might be more familiar to you, which is pointing your finger. So if you're sitting there right now going, whoa, mind blown, believe me, me too. I've explained this whole thing many times and it's, it never fails to astonish me that something that we take for granted, like a small movement, is so unimaginably complex. But that's the beauty of A&P, and that's also why it's hard. So think about pointing your finger for a while, and I will talk to you again in the next episode in which I'll tell you a story about something else. Thanks for your attention, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!